What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have a special guest, Frida Tehran, on, and believe it or not, this is the third time I've tried to record with her. We've had all kinds of technical difficulties, like literally everything under the sun has happened. We had to totally scrap the first round of audio, which I apologize for because it was just a great conversation and y'all will never get to hear it, but we have Frida back, so without further ado... How are you? I am doing great now that this is working. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed, this does not mess up on us while we're recording this go around. Yeah. So let's uh, let's just dive in. I mean, I don't even remember what all we talked about last conversation, but we'll just, you know, kind of expand upon some of that, bring that back to the table, flesh out some new things. But before we get into the details, let's just uh, kind of give the audience a little background on you and what you're studying right now. You, you've got a dual major going on. and what brings you into the ketogenic space in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Frida. I am a dual degree student, so I'm studying to get my MD, and I'm also studying to get my PhD in neuroscience. I do epilepsy research, and that's actually kind of how I got into the keto space because I became interested in the ketogenic diet as a therapy and to study it, to try to understand how it works and to develop better therapies for epilepsy patients. So that was my initial introduction to the ketogenic diet. Um, and then I just developed a personal interest in the diet, mostly um, not to uh, lose weight like um, a number of people have uh found this diet through, it's mostly for the uh, cognitive benefits. So I started experimenting with it about two years now. Um, it's been two years now and uh, yeah, and I've never gone back since. <laughs> what made you want to gravitate towards, uh, you know, epileptic seizures as a, as a focus? What, what, what drew you to that? Yeah. So um, I've always had an interest in the brain. Um, and if you think about it, it's one of the, it's the uh, organ in our body that we understand the least. Um, and uh, so I've always been very curious about it. But then I got introduced into the field of epilepsy, um, I'd say about six, seven years ago, when I started, um, when I started working in the lab that I'm in right now. And um, it, I was just very fascinated because epilepsy has been known for a long, long time in the Bible. It was described as um, being possessed by a demon or something like that. And um, ever since then, people have been fascinated by how seizures happen. And even more interesting, um, the diet, as you, as you and your audience may or may not know, was first treated by fasting. Um, and then later on, people started trying with ketogenic diets. Um, and that's kind of how... Uh, yeah, how the ketogenic diet uh, came about in this, at least in this field. Um, but then, of course, the first anti-epileptic drug was developed and people just forgot about the ketogenic diet and we stopped studying it. So this diet has been around in this space for almost 100 years and we still don't really understand how it works. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> no, no, it does for sure. It was always fascinating to me that you know, in the 20s, they were using the ketogenic diet to treat epileptic children. 
and then they introduced all the, the anti-seizure drugs, but they were less effective than the diet itself, but people still would gravitate towards using the drugs as opposed to the diet because I guess at the time the diet was pretty restrictive. It, it wasn't near as, um, uh, I guess, sustainable as it is now. Back then it was just like drink 90% of your oil, I guess. Yeah, no, you're right. And the reason that um, the ketogenic diet, or, or it's believed that this is how the ketogenic diet works, it's supposed to mimic the metabolic state of fasting. Because as you fast, you know, you have higher levels of ketones and you can get the same effect by virtually eliminating carbs and just consuming a high amount of fat. And that's how you can get a person into ketosis. But, you know, as, as everyone knows, the first seizure drug was kind of a big deal because it was easier for the doctors to just prescribe a pill. And so all of the focus, research focused, turned into developing more of these drugs and you know, up to date, there's about 20, 27 FDA approved antiepileptic drugs. And um, still, we have 30% of patients that have epilepsy that do not respond to these drugs. Um, but these are the patients that end up being placed on a dietary therapy like the ketogenic diet, and it works. So that just speaks uh, volumes of how a diet like this or just nutrition in general, how it impacts our health. Yeah, I can definitely see the appeal to, you know, implementing a, a, a drug back in the 20s or 30s when, you know, they didn't understand the mechanics of the diet and it was as limited as it was with regard to the nutritional choices you have. But now that we have all the ketogenic food options that we do and people have found that the modified keto approach with a little bit higher protein and, and even a little bit higher carb intake is still pretty pretty effective from an anti-seizure standpoint. Like, I don't see why anybody would want to gravitate towards the drugs over the, the diet. Right. And um, they ac actually, the attention uh, was drawn back to the diet in the 1980s uh, with the Charlie Foundation. Um, uh, more interest, um, people would just became more interested in the diet um, after the movie with Meryl Streep and and all of that just brought attention. But there's been other developments, like there's been other versions of the diet, you know, there's the diet that has a little more protein and more MCT, so medium chain triglycerides. And that's been used and it's been effective in kids, especially in kids that have epilepsy. But um, obviously as with everything, there's, um, there's side effects. And I feel that we would be able to avoid these side effects if we understood how the diet works better. Um, because there's still, there's still a lot of controversy as to how or what the exact mechanism or the protective mechanism of this diet is. So that's something that um, me and other scientists in the field uh, have been working on figuring out. Why is it that it, it seems to gravitate more towards, you know, children, the youth with epilepsy as opposed to adults? Is that just because it's, it's the, the children's brains a little bit underdeveloped? comparatively and it just is more effective on the children or is it just as effective on the adults it just seems that more children have the epileptic seizures so there's been some debate into this but um the reason that uh a lot of these kids that have epilepsy end up going um into the dietary route is because the alternative is uh surgery so removing a chunk of your brain to stop seizures from happening and normally when these kids have seizures um the likely cause is because of a genetic mutation. Whereas in adults, if you have a new onset of seizures, 
most of the time is because there's been like a traumatic brain injury, so TBI or some other disease. Whereas in kids, when they start having seizures at an early age, most of the time is because there was a, a, a genetic factor in it. And when there's a genetic factor, it's more likely for these kids to not respond to any of the anti-epileptic drugs. So obviously as a parent, you have a kid that's suffering through seizures and they tell you that's like, well, we can try a fifth drug or add a third drug to all the five drugs that you're already taking, or we can, you know, try to go through the surgical route, remove a chunk of your brain, possibly um, really affecting the outcome of your kids or your child's uh, quality of life. Or we could try this, you know, obscure diet that seems to work most of the time. You pick. <laughs> and yeah. um, I feel that as a parent, you rather, um, when you've tried everything um, and you really don't want for your kid to go in through such a, or go through such a, a difficult surgery, um, I mean, you'd rather change their diet, 100%. Yeah, I think bacon over brain surgery should be a t-shirt or something. <laughs> I agree. So is there, like, speaking of the diet, is, like, generally speaking, people and children, especially that are having epileptic seizures and are using the ketogenic diet, they're generally gravitating towards a higher fat ratio ketogenic diet than, than a modified Atkins, so to speak, correct? Yeah, and... Um, I feel that it largely depends on um, the physician and where the physician is working. So I feel different hospitals have different protocols, but the classic approach is either a ratio of four to one, anything under that, like a ratio of three to one, meaning a ratio of fat to proteins plus carbohydrates um, is not as effective. So normally these kids are started on a very, very high uh, fat, like even to the point where it can be, um, it's not the ketogenic diet that people in this space are uh, familiar with. You know, you even consider the carbohydrates that are found in the in toothpaste, which is insane if you think about it. That's not really the best. Um, that's not really a good quality of life if if you think about it. Um, so there's different approaches, and then of course there's the approach where sometimes a parent goes out of uh, their way and sees a different physician that has a more functional medicine approach where the diet is actually designed to be sustainable. Um, otherwise, you get these pre-made ketogenic drinks where if you look at the ingredients, it's like different kinds of oils and fats. And with the purpose of these drinks is, is to induce ketosis. So now you run the risk of maybe the kid or the child not getting the right nutrients to develop appropriately. Um, so now, obviously, the the attention now that the the ketogenic diet has been gaining momentum in this field, that there's more practitioners um, actually working hard to develop a better approach, a more sustainable approach for especially for children that are developing. Um, that way, they get a more wholesome a more wholesome diet. Yeah, and I imagine it's it's pretty individualized, like the each kid may have a different threshold to what they're able to allow from a you know a four to one or three to one ratio so i guess going pretty heavily fat based you know like a pretty strict four to one and then just slowly titrating the protein and carbs up gradually more so the protein and the carbs but just gradually titrating that up until you get any adverse effect is probably the best way to go about it right and there's 
I think the highest ratio I've seen in the literature has been a seven to one, which is oh, wow. crazy if you think about it. Yeah. Um, and it can get it can get a little more complicated than that because then the question comes, what is causing the epilepsy? Is it a genetic mutation? If so, what kind of genetic mutation? Because um, there was actually a paper that came out recently looking at different kids um, that had different mutations that caused that led for them to have um, or develop epilepsy. And it's interesting how one small mutation can lead to such a big condition like epilepsy, yet it does not respond at all to um, the ketogenic diet, whereas other genetic mutations respond a lot better than others. So that's another, that's an extra complication. Um, but see, I feel that the ketogenic diet works a lot better than um, when all else fails in terms of drugs because the ketogenic diet probably does has a lot of mechanisms. And I feel that one of the biggest obstacles to understand how the ketogenic diet works is that as scientists start studying it, they have one mechanism in mind. It's like, okay, we're going to figure mm. out if this is the one way it works. And I think that is just blinding us to what the big picture is um, because it does a lot of things. I mean, as you see, ketogen the ketogenic diet is not just using epilepsy. It helps... Uh, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and other cancers, and other neurodegenerative conditions. So that's like a big clue right there that there's probably multiple mechanisms happening. And um, I think um, one of the biggest um, or, or a, a good way to understand how it works is just to, for more collaboration between fields, which I feel now is happening um, in at least in the neuroscience field, because a lot of these conditions have started to um, being understood as a metabolic issue so um yeah do you do you think there's any is there any literature that suggests that these children with epileptic seizures benefit from taking in exogenous ketones like beta hydroxybutyrate salts or uh, ketone esters like is there any any positive effect there um to this date i am not aware of any um studies in human patients uh, much less in human kids that have studied just exogenous ketones, whether ketone esters or ketone salts. There's a lot of studies out there that have been done in animal models and uh, down to the cellular level. And the interesting thing is that it's very, it's 50-50. So some studies show that by just using exogenous ketones, either in the form of salt or in an ester, that you can um, stop seizure activity or, or, or epileptic activity in a mouse or the rat or the cell. But if you compare that to a mouse that has been treated with a ketogenic diet, you don't always see the same effect. So exogenous ketones may work, but if you're comparing that to a ketogenic diet that doesn't work, that doesn't mean, or what that tells you is that maybe it's not the ketosis that the ketogenic diet causes that is the responsible mechanism of protection. I don't know if that makes sense. And that's been, um, it's been a mixed finding. So some, some groups find that um, it does work that way, but other works or others, other groups like my group, um, we find that the, the diet works through a different mechanism because we've done studies where um, we treat epileptic mice with a ketogenic diet and we add sugar to their diet. So we prevent ketosis from happening, yet these mice are still protected. 
So that's kind of like a big hint that there's something else. There's another mechanism that people are not, that people may not be fully aware of yet. Um, and that's actually my project um, that I'm hoping to complete in a year or so. <laughs> so, so dive into that project a little bit further. Like, what is the the general con- like objective of that? What are you experimenting with? Yeah. So, um, I work in a lab that studies different seizure models. Um, so these mice have genetic mutations that mimic the human syndrome. So specifically, I work with Dravet syndrome mice, and these mice have a genetic mutation. Um, that leads them to have spontaneous seizures, and they also die prematurely from seizures. And um, there's, we've been doing some studies with ketogenic diets where we prevent these seizures from killing these mice. Um, and because uh, of the so, diet alone. Yeah. So the diet shows protection. If we compare mice that are eating a regular chow that they eat, which is like very high in carbohydrates to a ketogenic diet that's been designed for mice, these mice stop dying from seizures. So that's uh, that's something that's not really new, but my hypothesis to test was, how does ke- the ketone bodies formed in with the ketogenic diet, like what role do they play? And what I did is I added uh, sugar to their water, to their drinking water. And so I'm essentially adding carbs back into their diet, right? Mm-hmm. But these mice still are protected and they stop dying. So this is a high fat diet with some degree of glucose in their diet, um, yet they're still protected. So here in this, and at least in this model, um, ketosis is not necessary to be protective. Now I'm not saying that it's not beneficial. Um, it's just uh, what I'm showing is that there may be an alternative mechanism here that people are not aware of. Um, yet. So that's, that's what I'm working on right now. Did the addition of sugar water have any effect whatsoever on any other variables? Other variables as in, um, like how long they live or or um, weight gain, adipose tissue. I don't know if you're tracking that as well. Yeah. So adipose tissue, I'm not tracking, but I am tracking weight. Um, the weight was a little higher in these mice that got glucose for obvious reasons. Um, but it was still lower than um the mice that are fed a regular diet um but see i I don't i was not tracking a lot of other variables because at first the focus was let's see if these mice are still protected and they were so now we're working on on kind of a stratifying and seeing what exactly is going on in the brain um when a mouse or when an animal is fed a diet um this high with this high fat and so another thing that I'm working on that unfortunately I can't talk a lot about yet because uh, we haven't published it, but I'm working on different variations of this diet and making it a little more palatable so that we can push forward um, for a clinical trial in patients. Um, because some different diets that I'm designing, I'm finding that they're also protective, but it's still too early for me to say, oh, I got the next best, the next best thing after the ketogenic diet. Um, but it's just... Uh, it's just a, a big reminder of how important nutrition is in overall health. And um, yeah, so that I'm trying to bring that back into people's attention to, you know, start with nutrition. And then if that doesn't work, then we have to start thinking of maybe like other pharmacology interventions and such. Yeah, I definitely think anybody listening to this podcast hopefully is in agreement that, you know, should start with a, a solid base of nutrition before branching out into 
pharmacology as the solution to any issue you're having. Um, what what about like just your interest specifically? Like this this is what your primary focus is on now with the epileptic seizures. What other areas that you're studying are is pretty much all of your studying right now directed towards this? Yeah, so um, most of my research is based on this, um, understanding how the diet works and or how different dietary manipulations affect the brain, um, focused on epilepsy, of course. But I am um, collaborating with other people that are trying to understand um, how it affects uh, metabolism in general um, and uh, the microbiome. I can't really speak much about the microbiome because we're not we haven't gotten much done, um, although there's a lot of uh, research happening right now with how the ketogenic diet affects the microbiome. Um, so that's been kind of a big boom lately. Um, that's what I study, but that's not obviously the only thing I'm interested in. <laughs> like I'm also, um, like we have talked previously, I'm very interested in see how people start taking dietary interventions like the ketogenic diet into things like treating Alzheimer's disease or treating Parkinson's disease or any other neurodegenerative condition. So I, I try to stay as involved as I can with other faculty members in my, uh, in my institution um, just to see uh, what advances we are making. Um, but on a personal, um, from a personal point, I'm an athlete and I've, I've always been interested in nutrition. So that's, um, I apply that to my life as well into um i try to apply it to my family's life and my friend's life try to convince them that carbs are the devil i'm kidding they're yeah. not the devil but <laughs> uh but you know just just trying to bring them back into what the original human diet is supposed to be like i want to dive into two different things you you spoke on there first with regards to the neurodegenerative disease like alzheimer's dementia and whatnot i had a Cynthia Miller asked her Cindy on the podcast earlier, yeah. and she was talking about that basically being classified informally as type 3 diabetes. And we've talked before about how you know, the ketogenic diet obviously is like the Achilles heel for type 2 diabetes. From a, from a neurological standpoint, can you kind of flesh out why the Alzheimer's and dementia is, is considered type 3 diabetes and how, from a mechanistic standpoint, the ketogenic diet could be a solution to those? Yeah, so um, for neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, um, they can uh, Alzheimer's would be the next step after uh, mild cognitive impairment, and that's something that starts happening in adults that are older than sixty-five or so. You know, you notice that they start forgetting things, and they just start showing symptoms of them not being one hundred percent there. Um, they slow down in 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 uh, thought process and and just in memory and a lot of things. And there's been some studies that have been looking at. Uh, I'm not sure if if you spoke about this with uh, Nurse Cindy, but she um, oh well, not she, but what the these studies showed was that glucose uptake in some brain regions has been observed to be abnormal in people. That are older than 65 and that show and that have a lot of risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. And by abnormal, I mean the glucose uptake is actually decreased, even though their insulin, even though their insulin and their glucose levels in the plasma uh, are high. It looks like that certain regions in the brain don't respond appropriately, so they don't get the glucose uptake. 
So that's, I believe that's probably one of the reasons why it's also considered a type three diabetes because mm -hmm. the cells are not responding to the signals to um, utilize glucose and take it into the cells and use it as fuel. And that's something that, uh, scarily enough, it's not just seen in people that are predisposed to Alzheimer's, but it's, it's been also seen in women as young as 30-something that have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that's kind of scary if you think about that. They have a similar uh, glucose hypometabolism in the brain that is similar to older people that, have, that are at risk for Alzheimer's. Isn't that crazy? But the crazier part is that even though their glucose uptake is, or their glucose usage is impaired, their ketone usage isn't. So the way their cells use ketones is normal, is just as you and I. So that's why a lot of attention, I feel, has been brought up uh, with using nutritional ketosis to kind of help these people or treat them um, to improve their quality of life. Let me make so, sure I'm following here. So females in their 30s with PCOS are showing a similar um, uptake of glucose in the brain to elderly individuals with Alzheimer's? Yeah. So in some studies, they've shown that, that there's deteriorating brain energy metabolism. So there's less usage of glucose even though they're, they have higher levels of, of glucose in their blood and they have higher levels of insulin and they, certain regions in the brain still don't respond to that. So that, um, uh, that may explain some symptoms that these women are experiencing. Um, but that, that's probably not the main cause of their polycystic ovarian syndrome. Obviously, it's probably just a side, side effect. Um, right. it, what, what is scary is that you see a similar pattern in older people that are at risk or have uh, early signs of Alzheimer's. So that's just a big clue there that why some of these um, dietary therapies like the ketogenic diet have helped a lot of women to fight polycystic ovarian syndrome and how it's starting to show that it's helping a lot of people that are having some age-related cognitive decline or Alzheimer's. I feel like the, the ketogenic diet, I mean, obviously it's been around forever, but has really started gaining traction in the last few years. So we don't really have very many case studies or any of that I'm aware of, of individuals that have maintained a steady ketosis throughout the majority of their life into their older years. And then we can measure, you know, the, I don't think there's any studies that, that exist that indicate that they haven't had these Alzheimer's or dementia-like symptoms because they've been ketogenic for so long because there just are no no studies that illustrate that. But if you look at, is there any literature out there currently that, that takes an individual that is starting to exhibit signs of Alzheimer's dementia that have been put on ketogenic diets? And is there any decrease in those symptoms? Like, is there any literature that suggests that currently? To be, to be honest, I am not familiar with any good interventional studies where individuals are randomized into different uh, diets. The only studies that I'm familiar with is uh, these studies I'm telling you where they're showing that these people or these patients are showing uh, deteriorating brain metabolism. And the what's crazy is that some of these studies date back to like the 80s, yet mm -hmm. people didn't really I'm not sure if people weren't thinking of, of trying a dietary intervention like this back then, or I'm 
honestly, I'm not sure. But as far as um, studies where, you know, patients are actually randomized into different treatments and, and followed, you know, prospectively. So not just looking back at data that was recorded a long time ago and making deductions. I said, no, I'm not aware of any of those happening um, at the moment. But I feel that people like us that have been on a ketogenic diet for a while, we're probably going to be subjects for future studies in 20, 30 years of, of um, if they want to start looking at people that have been on a ketogenic diet for a long time, I feel. <laughs> Shoot, I hope so. I'll gladly Are, donate yeah. my body and brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I, I'm definitely intrigued by that from a neurological standpoint because I feel like if you if you're maintaining a state of, state of ketosis throughout the majority of your lifespan, I mean, you look at the compounding effect of your nutrition over the course of 50, 60, 70, 80 years, you know, if you're eating predominantly low fats, high sugar, high processed foods, and you look at the similarities that that has uh, to, you know, cocaine, for instance, in the brain, and right. you just see the, the stress on those brain synapses, and then you see how the ketogenic diet and ketone bodies can help kind of bridge those synapses and, and add a uh, you know positive impact. If you're maintaining a, a healthy, wholesome food diet and that's compounded over the course of your lifetime, I would just have to assume that your risk for all these life-altering diseases is greatly minimized. Yeah. No, yeah, definitely. And see, I have... Um... I have people in my family, like my grandma, she's already starting to show uh, signs of mild cognitive decline, like almost borderline with Alzheimer's. And I don't want to say that she has Alzheimer's because she hasn't been diagnosed, but she's still relatively young. She's in her early 70s. And mm -hmm. I just, I've been talking to her a lot about what uh, her diet was when she was younger. And uh, she's, a lot of what she told me, um, it just sounded like she fell into the whole, you know, saturated fat is evil and let's eat more margarine and let's ditch the animal fat and let's use Crisco instead. And she just craves sweets a lot more. So that was always, that hint was always there. It's just, we weren't aware that that may lead to problems in the future. So that's one of my um, side uh, efforts right now, trying to convince her to, you know, eat better uh, to see if we can slow that down. But like me, I know of a lot of people my age that have, um, you know, grandparents and, and family members that uh, are showing similar signs because a lot of these people got, um, you know, the that movement with saturated fat being evil and and let's eat more vegetable oils and let's eat more carbs and sugar. Um, so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so hard. I mean, I, I tried to talk to, I've had subpar luck with my own parents trying to, you know, get them onto the diet or at least educate them on the diet. They're pretty stubborn. It's probably where I get it. But like my grandparents, I mean, the older you go, and this isn't true for everyone, I'm sure, but it seems like the older they are, the harder it is to, to kind of break their habits that have been built over the course of their life. So like my, my grandfather, before he passed, I was trying to get him to, you know, get on the ketogenic diet to help with his inflammation mm -hmm. in his knees because he couldn't even walk. He was bound to wheelchairs for the last several years. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going home. Let's do this. You know, keto diet starting tomorrow, bacon and eggs. And then I left for the gym and then I came back and his, his uh, house aide there that was helping him move around. I mean, she was making him spaghetti. You know, it's just like Aww. people don't, 
they don't put the dots together. It's very hard to kind of tap into older individuals and kind of really educate them on why these foods are not good. Yeah, no, and I feel it's still very ingrained in people that, oh, you know, whole wheat bread is better and um, let's not eat bacon and let's not eat eggs. But if we do eat the eggs, let's eat the egg whites only. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's eat low fat everything. And it's just, yeah, I, it also bugs me a lot. Well, we we can just do do our best to keep spreading the the knowledge and educating future generations going forward, and then do everything we can for you know our parents and their parents' generation. Yeah, no, definitely. And so you said something right there that that brought my attention: the whole knee pain thing. So that's inflammatory pain, and that's another reason why I feel more people should get on this uh, cutting carbs out because the ketogenic diet itself is known to be anti-inflammatory. And that's, it's exactly. helped a lot of people that, that, you know, aside from, um, brain symptoms of, of aging, it helps with pain. It's just, they have to go through the quote pain of getting, you know, rid of bread and, and muffins and whatnot in their life. And a lot of people are just not ready to pull the trigger there. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's so, it's so sad to see my grandparents, uh, on my, on my dad's side, they're still around here and they, they they have all kinds of my my granny especially and her her hands are just so so swollen from arthritis that she literally can't even I mean it, it just feel bad for her. like her hands are so gnarled from arthritis that she can't even you know pick up simple things open jars I mean it's just sad and I have to assume that that would make I mean it, it's probably the damage is probably done at this point but I would assume that even if she was to switch over to the diet she would have an anti-inflammatory effect that would at least make the day-to-day much more tolerable. So there's a there's a huge tool in people's, you know, tool chest to be able to use, especially for these older individuals that are suffering from these, you know, just aches and pains that could be greatly minimized. Yeah, definitely. You just we just need to get more doctors on board <laughs> to be able to, be, to to educate the patients better. I think that's that's the biggest thing, the biggest movement that has to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let let's switch gears a little bit and talk performance athletic performance you are an athlete yourself you you lift hard you lift heavy you, you're doing a bunch of endurance sports too like cycling as well right yeah i do a lot more um cycling i ran for a bit um i did i, I did a half marathon not so long ago i initially wanted to do a marathon um but training outdoors in the midwest i live in iowa um, in the winter, this particular winter was really rough. So running outside was not was not very appealing. And it's not appealing to run on a treadmill for more than 10 miles either. So I just yeah. cut it off at a half marathon and did that. But yeah, I do, I do cycling, um, but I prefer lifting heavy weights a lot more than cardio. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally am in the same boat with you there. Um, what about lifting heavy weights on keto? Have you noticed any, you said you've been keto now for about two years. Have you noticed any change in your body's adaptation to the stress that you put on it with lifting heavy weights? Have you had to ad- adapt your training philosophy at all as it relates to the diet or any changes there? Yeah. So thinking back, um, before I started the ketogenic diet, I was already playing with intermittent fasting. So I mm-hmm. was not, I was skipping breakfast and i even did the whole cyclic carb up days sometimes where most of my carbs would go 
um, I'll have the day before um, having a, I don't know, a hard CrossFit workout because I did CrossFit for a year as well before I started doing a ketogenic diet. Um, mm -hmm. But relatively speaking, I was already consuming a low carb diet if you compared me with everyone else. Um, uh, and I was I was doing just fine um, when I decided to you know, pull the trigger and try a ketogenic diet. Um, I feel that I didn't struggle as much as other people struggle. You know, I, I don't remember experiencing the keto flu, um, but I do remember that I would start getting tired in the gym a lot faster. Um, but that didn't last long, to be honest. I, I just um, listening to people like Dominic D'Agostino um, and how it's important to go through a strict period of you know, a ketogenic diet for, I don't know, six weeks or so um, before you start seeing an improvement. So I just stuck, stuck. I was stubborn enough and I was like, I'm going to stick to this. I'm going to see a decline in how much weight I'm lifting and how often I can do this. But I know that in the long term, this would be good. And indeed, after like six weeks, um, or I think it was maybe like three months of consistent, um, consistently eating less than 20, 30 grams of total carbs, I started noticing that I was feeling a lot better in the gym. I actually felt I could go on for hours. <laughs> and mm -hmm. a lot of these workouts were being done fasted. Like, I don't know about you, but I know I prefer to work out in the morning. And obviously when I work out in the morning, it's either just straight up black coffee. Um, and that's it. And I feel, and I've, I've feel great just doing that. But I do feel that it, it took a while of adaptation to be able to get to that point. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, ever since I've, I've been continuing this diet and my lips have been getting up there, obviously not anywhere near you or Crystal's level, but, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, um, are, are you, are you incorporating any of the carb ups now or are you staying pretty strict with it? So um, earlier this year, um, I actually did the deeper state keto protocol, and uh, I think that was the the most strict I had ever been with my carb intake because before, uh, and like a lot of people, we were doing or we were going by the net um, mm -hmm. net carb number. Um, I find that I started doing a lot better by just considering the total grams of carbs in the food. Um, and I've been trying to stick to that since, but before, um, I kind of still had about 50 grams of carbs or so a day. And I, I was almost always pretty strict with my diet. The only thing that would happen sometimes is when I would travel back home, um, I'm originally from Mexico. So I'd go visit family where no one is anywhere near in the spectrum of being low carb. Um, yeah. So that was always a challenge. And every once in a while, well, I would kind of just, you know, just to get them off my back, I'd indulge in eating tortillas or something. But other than that, I mostly stay low carb. Lately, though, um, I did start having maybe like one carb up meal a week. I'm not following a protocol. I'm just experimenting right now. Just see how I feel. Um, but I have not, um, I have not seen that much of a difference to be honest. Um, but I still, I feel like I, I still need to do a little more, um, self-experimenting for that. How did you structure, like, have you been 
experimenting with it currently? Like, how are you structuring that carb up? Um, like, is it around your workouts or are you hitting a cer- certain gram count of carbohydrate? Um, so normally um, what I've done is in my off day, I if I'm going to include carbs, I wait until the, towards the end of the day. Because if I if one has the carbs earlier in the day, I personally find that I start getting hungry or I get mm-hmm. a lot more hungry, almost as if it triggers like a ghrelin release or something. And then I just want to eat all the things. <laughs> but if I wait and have all of my um, carbs towards the end of the day, you know, maybe closer to bedtime, I actually feel I sleep better. And this is especially true um, if this is the dinner before a heavy leg workout the next morning. And that's normally the pattern that I try that I try to follow. Um, but see, when it comes to things like cycling, um, everyone around me does the whole carb up thing the day before. And mm-hmm. um, there's actually a big cycling event happening next week. And historically, there's like carb up parties where people bring spaghetti and all of this stuff for people to eat the day before. And this cycling event is actually the whole week. It's called a Ragbri. So the rate or, or the, the registers annual great, um, I forgot what the acronym stands for, but it's essentially going from one um, side of the state to the other. And we're talking about like 60 to 70 miles a day. And all throughout the day, there's like stops where people eat um, all sorts of food. Um, But I've done it in the past several times. And actually, um, I don't recommend this to people. But when I started the ketogenic diet two years ago, I started it a week before this (laughs) bike race. And um, I definitely felt it. I'm not going to lie. But ever since I trained myself to just... um, not depend on carbs. I started doing all of these acid um, uh, cycling races and stuff. I'd go in the morning fasted for 30 miles and I'd feel okay. Um, And I feel that that's something that um, people have to experience first to uh, realize that they don't don't need carb updates for these events. Now, if you want to race and compete against cyclists that do all carbs and and are like really really fast this is when strategic inclusion of carbs may help you but you won't know that until you try it out Um, i don't think it's something that everyone should do i just think that you have to experiment to see what works best for you with me i i find it i find that i do fine without carb updates yeah i feel like with a you know a a long race or some type of endurance sport where you're carving up the night before and then you're having you know several hours of strenuous activity you know that, that that's where the whole bonking term comes from at some point your, yeah. your body can only hold so much glycogen from carbohydrates anyway so once you de- deplete that and you're not ingesting anymore i mean it, it's not going to carry the, the the prior night's carb up isn't going to carry you through the entirety of the race basically no not if you're not fat adapted. And um, I feel that for someone in the endurance field, especially the ultra runners, I feel it's very important for these people or for these athletes to learn to train fasted, especially in long distances, because that's how you get your body used to being 
uh, tapping into your own fat stores. Because as you as you may know, we have up to forty thousand dollars, four thousand dollars, not dollars, but calories of fat mm-hmm. that we store. But we only have so much glycogen available. And once that glycogen runs out, we have to be able to use our own fat stores. So if you uh, are an athlete that already went through that period of adaptation, you actually spare your glycogen and you leave it for emergencies. Emergencies being where you're like going all out on an uphill or sprinting to, you know, get those extra few seconds in your time. And uh, so, yeah, you're able to spare that glycogen, um, whereas other athletes that are, you know, the classic high carb athletes, they end up going through that glycogen store a lot faster. And when they go through that glycogen store, that's when they hit the wall and that's what bonking is. So if you ask other fat adapted endurance athletes that run marathons or, or do these long cycling races, not you, I, you'd find a lot less of them that, uh, bonk. So bonking is less, um, prevalent in that group of athletes. Do you, uh, the research that's really fascinating me right now is, you know, once you become fat adapted, you're able to replenish glycogen stores without dietary carbohydrates. You're able to just do that internally. Yes. Um, and it, it seems to be like the more you're adapted, the more efficient you are at replenishing those glycogen stores. So I don't know what the, the literature shows with regards to comparing, you know, a carb-adapted athlete versus a keto-adapted athlete, the rate at that replenishment, but it seems as though it, it's pretty neck and neck. Like it, it's not suggesting like the more adapted you are, you're able to replenish that glycogen at pretty much the same rate as a carb-adapted athlete would. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, one of the most, um, I feel, famous studies that was recently published, recently being 2016 by Jeff Bullock and that group. So they actually did um, a study in a group of low-carb athletes that had been on that diet anywhere from like nine months to 36 months, which is big because a lot of the previous studies that had looked at a ketogenic diet and performance, they had placed a group of athletes on a diet for like four weeks, which is not Mm -hmm. enough time for that person to adapt, right? So the remarkable thing about this study was that these athletes had been on a diet for an average of a year or more. And so these athletes did... um, uh, I believe it was, uh, I don't remember if it was either a cycling or, or, or running on a treadmill, but they, what they were looking at is um, fat oxidation rates and they were measuring um, levels of triglycerides in the blood, levels of, of uh, ketone bodies and levels of glucose and other things. And they found that the muscle levels or the, or the levels of glycogen in their muscle in both groups before was about the same. And after, it was also about the same, except it looks like the low-carb athletes had a little more left in the tank, but that was not uh, significantly different. The interesting thing is that they kept checking these markers up to three hours after doing these uh, running drills, and they found that both groups actually repleted glycogen about to the same or at the same rate, even though the low carb athletes did not get any and did not get any sort of like post workout carb up meal, they just ate their regular uh, whatever was prescribed to them. Yet they still had the same level of glycogen 
uh, replenished in their muscles, which has been one of the biggest things that people in the field say that, oh no, you know, people that do low carb diets don't have enough glycogen or they don't replenish glycogen as fast as the high carb athlete. And this study was very important in showing that that was not the case. Um, it is important to note that they did not measure performance. They only measured um, all of these biomarkers in their blood and and such. But regardless, the glycogen replenishment was the same. That's like a big hint right there that it's not the glycogen is not like the limiting thing here. Yeah, and see that that's my biggest you know frustration is it seems like whenever people are comparing performance of you know keto adapted versus carb adapted, whether you need to have a pre-workout or post-workout carb-up meal, it, it often points to the fact that, or the suggestion that if you're keto-adapted, you don't have the glycogen replenishment, so you wouldn't be able to perform at the same rate with really highly glycolytic events or sports. If you're doing like HIIT training or something like that, you just wouldn't be able to perform. But if you're replenishing glycogen at the same rate, then I don't understand where that argument you know, can be stemmed from. Like It's just irrelevant at this point. Right. Um, but like I said, they they... Don't, they did not measure performance, and that may be a big caveat of this study. Um, but there was a, another more recent study, from, it was actually published this year, and this study was assessing the effects, uh, once again, four-week ketogenic diet. <laughs> um, it was just four weeks, but this was done um, on a group of CrossFitters. And these CrossFitters, um, they were placed on a regular uh, diet, or a ketogenic diet for four weeks, and this was both males and females. What they were looking at is how fast could these um, could these CrossFitters adapt? And what they did show, which is another reason why it's important for people to try this and, and see what works best for them, is that males adapted better. Um, they were able to perform almost um, the same as their uh, the other males that were eating a regular diet, um, but it took them a little while to adapt. With females, it took them a little longer. And if I mean, if you look at the conclusion that this study um, offered, was that it is possible to fare well in the ketogenic diet if you're doing CrossFit, CrossFit, but it may not necessarily support performance in CrossFit with both males and females. So that's another that's another big, um, I guess, discussion topic. You know, how does a ketogenic diet work the same in males versus females? So it, yeah, I just found that it was very interesting. Yeah, I definitely do think it takes females, on average, a bit longer to fully adapt, at mm -hmm. least to the degree that that males are adapted. So, I mean, there's it's again very individualized, but I would I would suggest it'd be time and a half for females at least, on average, at least what I've seen. Um, and I don't know why that is from a mechanistic standpoint, but it seems that women do take a little bit longer to adapt. But again, four-week study, I mean, I would argue that the real, you know, true benefits of ketogenic dieting from a performance standpoint don't really even start happening until well past six months in. I mean, I honestly, years, uh, it, it just keeps continuing better. But a four-week study would be not, not a really fair study from a performance standpoint alone. Exactly. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you, which is why I was bringing a lot of attention to this study by Jeff Bullock, um, that these, these athletes had been on that diet for much longer than six months, like the, the shortest amount or the shortest length was nine months. 
So that's, I think that's key right there, you know, to have, to be consistent and be, uh, allow enough time to adapt to, you know, for your body to create the right machinery per se, to be able to use these ketones appropriately and to learn how to function better. Um, and I feel Absolutely. that's definitely important. And a lot of other changes start happening. Um, I believe last time we were talking about the MCT, meaning the monocarboxylic transporter. Mm-hmm. And that actually, um, that's believed to be one of the mechanisms of how these ketogenic diets help some athletes in performing better for longer uh, times. Because um, these uh, MCTs, not to be confused with medium chain triglycerides, they actually um, transport not just um, ketone bodies, but also lactate. And as you know, when you're working out and you keep working hard without stopping, your muscles start burning and you just have to stop. When you reach that point, that is what's considered the lactate threshold. So that is where you're done. You're working overtime and your body is sending signals or more like your brain is sending signals to your body to, hey, calm down. You're about to, you know, cross the line and and, and maybe too much. So what the ketogenic diet does on an athlete, especially, is that MCTs, uh, are increased. So they are, they're expressed a lot more in cells. So that helps to be able to dispose of that lactate and allows you to be able to handle higher levels of lactate. So that's a big advantage that a keto adapted athlete has over a high carb athlete that you can endure the burn, uh, for longer, which is like a big advantage, especially in like, um, in, uh, endurance sports, even in lifting. If you think about it, you can make a good weightlifting movement into cardio if you keep doing high reps, right? <laughs> so that would definitely oh, help. Oh yeah, too. for sure. Yeah, I mean it's definitely something that I've noticed in my own training. I don't I don't hit a like a the lactate threshold wall so much anymore. I mean it's not like a burn. I'll, when I hit when I fatigue or hit failure, it's it's more of like a like I just I just there's just nothing left in the tank, but it's not like a, a burning sensation that I feel in my muscles at all. Mm-hmm. But no, I think I think that, and there's not a whole lot of research around that 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 I've seen, but I, I know that's kind of on the cutting edge right now. The whole, um, you know, MCT transporters and how having a, a deeper adaptation to the ketogenic diet increases your ability to clear lactates from the muscles, which yes. I think is is a huge. Um, I'm curious to see how that research gets you know filled out over time as as more studies are being done i know uh ryan lowry's studying that pretty heavily right now i believe mm, yeah yeah i'm not i'm not a hundred percent familiar with all the work that he's put out but i know he's one of the people out there that's him and like jeff bullock and and others have been also looking into this it just it's it's hard in the science field to get funding for things like that because there's a lot of obstacles um if you know when you're proposing an idea to that you may find interesting but if the people that provide the money don't find it interesting then you're kind of fighting against the current so it's it's been um people like jeff bullock and them have i have no idea how they've managed to find funding and i feel a lot of it is like volunteering from low-carb athletes that want to you know get this knowledge out there and and they're just they're like yeah we want to volunteer be part of the study and help out you know, so it, it's, it's going to, it takes, it'll take a lot of effort, but I feel that a lot of effort is being done at the moment. So I'm looking forward to see what, what is published in the next few years. Yeah, it's exciting for sure. It's, it's sad that it's the, the process to 
you know, research these studies and and publish them to the to the public is 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 such a strenuous process because it makes it it, it provides so many barriers to entry. I mean, just looking at the the, uh, the the test subjects used in these studies and their level and, and length of adaptation, like it's very hard to get a group of people to agree to adhere to a certain dieting protocol for enough time, you know, like six plus months to perform a study. I mean, that's a big ask of any any test group for sure. Oh, definitely. And and it's like, I, I guess I have the blessing of being able to work with mice because I can control everything with their diet, yeah. with their sleep, with everything, but you can't do that with a human. You know, a lot, unfortunately, a lot of the human studies out there rely a lot on uh, surveys. So they fill out a survey and you want to believe that they're being 100% honest. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, that isn't always the case. And not not because the person is lying on purpose, but there's something called a bias. You know, you're, you're trying to recall, it's like, oh yeah, I think I ate only 10 grams of carbs this day, but actually no, they ended up eating 50 grams. They just don't remember. And a lot of that relies on uh, a lot of that of the research out there relies on surveys and that can be misleading. Obviously the gold standard would be to, you know, have someone under constant surveillance. Um, but some of the most interesting studies, in my opinion, were done like in the eighties. Um, I don't know if you know what is the longest person or the longest time that someone has gone without eating in a long time. I think it's 382 days, this person yeah, yeah. asking. And that was only obviously uh, done under clinical uh, supervision. And uh, that's the only way they were able to see that this person was indeed fasting because they were constantly monitoring this patient. Another thing is that this person also started at a very obese level. Um, and, but yeah, like that is the only way I feel that a hundred percent reliable human study can be done if of everything, all variables could be controlled. But as we know, it's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a huge opportunity for crowdsourcing data, so to speak. I mean, I don't know if that's a technical term or not, something I just made up on the spot, but having people like, like you and I that have a passion for the ketogenic diet, you know, athleticism, volunteering ourselves as, you know, test subjects that we can, I mean, people like us, like us data geeks, I mean, we, we're going to adhere to the, the macros <laughs> that we set for. So for, for the sake of data, it would be totally fine for us to just do that. And then, then we can gather some accurate information and make a, you know, a, a study and whatnot accordingly. But I don't know if that's in, in the works. I, mean, I have to assume that people are going to start doing that and taking advantage of that opportunity just to get a larger test pool. Oh, yeah. And uh, you're actually right. I believe that's a right term. Um, but things like, for example, the aura ring that I know you also have, um, I believe you uh, agree to release some of your information if they ever want to use it for a study and see tools like the aura ring and other um, food tracking apps. I think those are very, very useful for people that kind of want to volunteer their data for research. Um, I don't remember. I use chronometer. Uh, I personally use chronometer where I track food. And I believe there are some studies that you can opt in um, to for them to use your data. So the tools are out there. They just people have to step up. And, and if anybody out there listening is looking for volunteers, um, I'm all in. I'm all in to contribute to science and especially for this yeah. um, for this cause. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there was something that we talked about on our first call that 
did not get published that we wanted to bring up on this call? Was there was there anything that come to mind? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, we talked about neurodegenerative diseases. We talked about um, intro workout carbs and such. Uh, I, I can't remember. I, uh, did we talk a little more about the medium chain fatty acids or something? I, I, I mean, not. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. We covered covered quite a bit this ground. I could have sworn there was something that I was quizzing you on, and, <laughs> and you went and did a bunch of research <laughs> on it, and I felt bad if I didn't include that in this show. No. Um, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about it. Um, I think you had a lot of questions about the the glycogen storage and how our body uses it and the liver versus the muscle. Um, so I don't know if there's anything else you want to know. Um, maybe like how the brain uses uh, the ketones or something like that. I don't know. You can continue quizzing me and I'll tr do my best. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit with regard to... We mentioned like type three diabetes, you know, and yeah. the ketone body's ability to kind of bridge the gap with those brain synapses. Is how is that measured? Is that all through uh, PET scans, or how is that done? Yeah, so they use different imaging modalities. PET scans being one one where they tag uh, a glucose molecule with like a fluorescent probe, and that's the way that um, that is tracked. Um, there are other methods used that I'm not very familiar with, but the gist is you tag a molecule of your interest, in this case, glucose, um, and see where it is used up or broken up in the brain. And that's how you measure um, metabolism. And that's how it's been, that's uh, what showed how certain regions in the brain um, in these people that have signs of cognitive decline and that have risk factors for Alzheimer's, um, that's what showed up in these scans as underutilizing glucose. Um, and then other studies that looked at the usage of ketones and these, and using the same principle, they saw that the usage of ketones in these brain regions was the same, that that wasn't impaired. And that's why, um, diets like the ketogenic diet are being brought up as uh, a, a better lifestyle change for these patients to cope better. Um, I think you had asked me, I remember you asked me um, what I thought that the brain's favorite fuel source was. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. No, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Let's run with it. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's, there's obviously a, a debate about that, but I feel that the biggest issue here is that it, it is perceived that glucose is the preferred fuel. The thing is, we are always fed. Glucose is always available. You know, we have three meals a day. Um, so I wouldn't say it is the preferred fuel. I'd say it's the dominant fuel. And this is this is why I think that's the case. If you think about it, um, what do babies that are still in the womb eat? They rely heavily on ketones. And actually, mm -hmm. ketones are very necessary for brain development. And even after a baby is born, the mother's milk has actually a high amount of medium chain fatty acids. So this is promoting a constant state of nutritional ketosis, which is very, very necessary for the brain to develop properly. Now, obviously, um, uh, there was a move back in the late 90s and such of Nestle and other companies saying, oh, formula is better than 
breast milk. And I feel that was very, that was probably not the best move for a lot of uh, developmental, um, for the developmental uh, environment for these babies. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but babies for a great portion of their early years are supposed to be in a state of nutritional ketosis. Um, and even their body is made to be able to sustain that because their own body fat stores, the composition of that fat is very different than the adult fat because they have a lot more medium chain fatty acids because those are supposed to be more ketogenic. Whereas with us, we don't have as many. Yeah, what, what are, this is like a total random trivia question here, but do you have any idea what the macronutrient breakdown is of the, the colostrum, the, the breast milk? Um, it is not the same as cow milk, I can tell you that. Um, but in terms of the composition of, of maternal milk, it has a high level of medium chain fatty acids. So it's obviously a lot more fat um, than carbohydrates, a lot less lactose. Um, but it's mostly fat to my um, okay. knowledge. I don't know the exact breakdown, but it's definitely a large percentage of fat. Yeah, see, I, I knew then. Another reason it would always surprise me that people would switch from that to like a formula base or from a formula to just these super high sugary, you know, baby foods. It's just not, not what we're designed to do by any means. Or based on soy. Oh, even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's not good. Not, not good at all. We need to keep these babies eating what they're supposed to be eating. Right. Or drinking. Um, what, what, uh, what, what are you most excited about now as far as like your personal training and experimentation? Like what, what direction are you taking things? Um, let's see. Well, I'm constantly just trying to experiment with performance. So sometimes I just do fasted, um, workouts like cycling long cycling distances and sometimes i um i don't know try to introduce something like uh i don't know if you're, you're probably familiar with this the you can super starch that's actually mm -hmm. something that i was talking to um uh ashley and sarah armstrong so the strong sisters and uh through instagram about maybe experimenting and documenting how i feel with that so i think that's that's the one thing i can think about that i'm planning on experimenting with, um, just to see how I feel. Um, and yeah, so that, that's one thing that I have coming up. And another thing is, well, I have that bike race next week. Um, so that's going to be fun. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the only thing I can think of at the moment. Do you have a, a fueling strategy in place that you're planning on implementing for that bike race? Yeah, so I actually carry with me, and I do this when I travel too. Um, you know those uh, f bombs, you know the macadamia mm -hmm. butters, and I also have the perfect keto nut butters. And uh, I kind of also do like a Dominic D'Agostino approach. I carry sardines with me whenever, um, just in case I, I don't know I'm found in a place where there's nothing else I can eat or that I don't feel like eating. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I plan to enjoy myself. They have all sorts of food um, at different stops, but I obviously um, go for like the brats and the the fatty stuff. I probably avoid all the ice cream and stuff. <laughs> no big spaghetti dinner the night before. Oh no, I'd feel horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would not recommend that by any means. No. Well, you'll definitely have to keep me posted on the outcome of that race. I'm curious to see how 
how it goes for you. I'm I'm getting into cycling. I say that loosely because I'm definitely not a cyclist by any means, but I, I'm keen to dive into that realm. Probably not hardcore endurance endurance cycling by any means, but just grabbing a bike and going out exploring Arkansas with a bike. But I don't know, cycling I feel like is a really good way to I don't know, stimulate a lot of muscles that you don't stimulate with resistance training, or at least in a different way. Plus it just gets you outside. So I think I think that's a good avenue to take things. Oh, definitely. I actually uh, recommend that over running any day because running does a lot of, it, it's just too hard on your body, I feel. And with cycling, if you change the gears, you can easily make that a leg workout. Like if you mm-hmm. increase the resistance, like some cycling workouts that I do, I I just end up so, so, I feel like I did a bunch of squats the next day from how bad my quads hurt. Um, and I just feel it's a lot easier on your knees, to be honest. So, but that's obviously my personal preference. <laughs> and and you're pretty predominantly doing all road biking, right? Do you do any trail biking? Yeah, no, I do mostly road biking. Um, I do have a gravel bike, but um, I prefer to do road cycling because I feel I can go faster and and I don't know, I just I just like that better. Do you have any um, bike recommendations? Like, if I'm going to be getting a bike anytime soon, what direction would you point me in? Oh man, that's kind of hard. I have to give you like a questionnaire. Like, what is your budget? What do you intend (laughs) mostly for? Um, I mean, I certainly had to think about that when I got mine. So, but we can talk more about it later. Yeah, we'll definitely talk later on that. It's it's funny that the deeper you dive into all these different sports and just events in general, I mean, you can totally go down the rabbit hole and things. Like when you start getting into biking, it's like, People are proud of their bikes and they, they talk about them. So it's it's cool for me because I get to learn so much. When you get you find what people are passionate about, you can just, you know, dive into it deeply. Oh, yeah, definitely. I can nerd out on bikes too any day. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I will definitely pick your brain on bikes. Um, until then, though, where can people go to find out more about you? Yeah, so I'm mostly active on Instagram. Um, lately, I've been more active on Instagram. So my handle is uh, the letter A. Frida, F-R-I-D-A, and Tehran, T-E-R-A-N, all together. So if you ever, if anybody out there wants to chat about anything, nerd out about anything, um, I, I'm always there too. And uh, my email, um, it's my first name, so F-R-I-D-A, the letter T, and then the number 28 at gmail.com. But preferably just find me on Instagram. Very cool. Very cool. I will link out to that, make it easy for people to find you. And we'll be, we'll definitely be in touch. I want to pick your brain about the the cycling, and then I want to hear how this race goes. And I'm sure I'll have to reach out and pick your brain on all these experiments you're doing going forward because it's got me interest for sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I certainly appreciate your time, Frida, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. No, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Take care. <laughs>